All right, good morning, everyone. So, into Has American Christianity Failed? Today's chapter, prayer, which of course we've touched on. I, my plan for this chapter is to hit the high points. If you want to dig deeper, we can certainly do that. But let's go ahead and begin with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So, picking up where we left off, page 192. Wolfmuller introduces us to the concept of prayer as wrestling with God, and he uses Jacob as, and the story of Jacob as his entrance into his discussion of prayer. So, of course, up at the top of 192, quoting from Genesis 32, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Wolfmuller writes, The Christian prays. In American Christianity, prayer serves to deepen the relationship between the Christian and God, Prayer is thought to be a two-way street, an expression of intimacy with God. Prayer is emotive and motivated by the desire to feel close to God. The Bible gives us a much different teaching and practice of prayer, something we will consider in this chapter. Right, I think you can just glance at the what Wolfmuller has written and imagine the potential pitfalls of viewing prayer this way, if you haven't experienced them directly already, that if prayer is a two-way street, it sure seems like I'm doing all the talking. And if it's an expression with intimacy with God, I, I kind of understand that, except doesn't God already fully know me? And then that usually punts to something that Wolfmuller doesn't Mention, and that's this idea that prayer is just there to change me, which is, even though there's truth in that, and that can be a function of prayer, that's never articulated in the scriptures as what prayer is for. Does that make sense? So it can't be central to the essence of prayer, even if it is, in some cases, an effect of prayer. And then this idea that prayer is motivated by the desire to feel close to God. Well, what if you don't feel close to God? Then you don't pray. And very frequently that's happened because it's so emotionally driven that the times in our life in which we most need to pray are the, the times in our life where we feel the least desirous of prayer. So we need something deeper than our emotions. We need something, you know, again, think of this Think of how hideous this sounds in the words of Americans, but in the ears of Americans. But uh, we need a discipline. We need a habit. We need something laid that's there, rain or shine, feeling it, not feeling it, and that's biblical prayer. Okay, so just a few thoughts on that. Now, 
As he introduces Jacob 192, if you drop down on the left-hand column, you'll see a paragraph begin, Consider Jacob. And that's where we'll pick up. Consider Jacob. He stole his brother's birthright, ran away for 14 years, and is, in Genesis 32, headed back to the promised land, worried the entire way that Esau will kill him at first sight. So God comes to Jacob as he stands alone on the bank of the river, river Jabbok. And what does God do with Jacob? Does he teach him? Comfort him? Show him a miracle? Give him a vision so that Jacob will know that the Lord is on his side? No. God grabs a hold of Jacob and begins to wrestle him. This is the kind of stuff that would get my, get my brothers and me in trouble. God wrestles Jacob and Jacob fights back. And this goes on all night. Eight hours of grappling, circling around to get the best position, diving for the leg, trying to get a better hold, throwing each other in the dirt. God tries to get away, but Jacob won't let him go without a blessing. God touches Jacob in the hip and knocks it out of its socket. Jacob would limp for the rest of his life. Whatever you might expect God to do with Jacob, this is not it. A wrestling match that lasts through the night, which is exhausting. I've got a 10-year-old boy. We, if I wrestle for like 20 minutes, I'm usually pouring sweat. And by 40 minutes, I'm exhausted. He's still beating on me, even though I'm kind of like walking away and trying to get to the kitchen for a drink. I'm getting blows in my back, you know, puppy dog energy. But could you imagine eight hours? I can't. So, a wrestling match that lasts through the night. But this is how it is with the Lord and us. This is how it is with prayer. Prayer is not putting a quarter in the heavenly vending machine and pushing the right buttons so a blessing will fall down upon us. Prayer is wrestling with God, grabbing a hold of his promises. And even if he tries to get away, we don't let go until he gives us a blessing until he keeps his promise. At last, Jacob prevails, and God gives him a blessing. He even changes his name from Jacob to Israel, which means wrestles with God. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now Wolfmuller writes, you are Israel, a Christian, one who wrestles with God, one who prays. So I think that that's a nice introduction because generally speaking, it resonates with our experience as we pray that God would bless us in one way or another. It's much more akin to a wrestling match frequently than it is to, you know, writing poetry and love notes to each other. It's very frequently... Our prayers are like those of the psalmist, where there's lament and confusion and hurt and remembrance of God's promises and questioning him in regard to those promises and holding him to those promises. And yes, frequently changing our own hearts and attitude and demeanor as we remember who God is and what he promises to do for us. But even still, a wrestling match is probably 
a very good analogy for what much of our prayer lives are like. I will pause there to see if you have any brief reflections on this, but first let me introduce the next section, Prayer 101, Four Things We Need to Know First. And we'll, we'll just very quickly go through these four things at a 40,000-foot view. Any questions or comments on what we've hit so far? Does it resonate with you, your experience? Okay, let's go into these things we need to know. Wolf Miller writes, There are four things we need to know first about prayer. First, prayer is commanded. Second, prayer comes with many wonderful promises. Third, we pray because we have many great needs. Fourth, Jesus teaches us the words to pray. Those of you who came to our service this morning heard a reading on the Lord's Prayer where Luther talks about prayer and does so at length in the large catechism. One of the interesting things about the large catechism is how much it focuses on this commandment of God to pray. And that has two sides to it. It has what we might call a law side and a gospel side. This commandment where God commands us to pray has a law side that if you don't, you will be punished. This is summarizing Luther. If you don't, the reason why God has asked you to pray is so that you may not suffer what you deserve, but since you refuse to pray, he will give you what you deserve. So there's what we would call the law side of this commandment. What would be the gospel side of this commandment? That we can absolutely be sure that he hears us no matter how sinful we are, because he has commanded us to pray. He desires us to pray. That's not just in jest. There is implicit there a promise to hear us. So no matter how sinful we are, he promises to receive our prayers. And no matter how unworthy we are, he promises to answer our prayers and not in the way of the Greek gods of old. Like, oh, you prayed for your son to be saved? Great, we'll spare him, but all your other children will die. That's the kind of prayer you, that's the kind of prayer you get, or the kind of answer you get when you pray to the Greek gods. Hey, do this one thing. Okay, we'll do this one thing, but it'll cost you ten times as much. That's not how God is. You remember the teaching of Jesus, which... Which of you being evil <laughs> would even still, when his son asks for a fish, give him a serpent? Or when his son asks for a loaf of bread, would give him a scorpion? This kind of thing. None of you. How much more will your Father in heaven give you good things? And so there's this comfort that in the command to pray, that God will not treat us the way we deserve or treat us according to our unworthiness, but will answer our prayers in our best interest. Which, of course, is a little bit of an adjustment, too. Because if God tells you no, or if his answer quite evidently is no, then that is a call to trust in his goodness. To trust that he has heard me 
and he has chosen the better path and portion for me. Even though I can't see that or don't want that or don't desire this, even still I entrust myself and say, in essence, thy will be done, entrusting that his will is better than mine, his vision is better than mine, his plan from heaven's vantage point is better than mine from earthly, narrow, blind vantage point. So in this commandment, then, there are also these great comforts, that he will hear us despite our sinfulness, because he's commanded, and he will answer, despite our unworthiness, in our best interest, because he has commanded. Okay, so that command of God has these two sides in the large catechism. So, first, then, is this command of prayer. That's what you see on 193. Wolfmuller writes, First prayer is commanded in the second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 27. When the Lord forbids us from misusing his name, he is commanding us to use it rightly. Uh, Yeah, maybe a not-so-obvious abuse of his name is neglecting it, not calling upon it. You can see here how the first commandment and the second commandment flow together. So he is commanding us to use it, his name, rightly, to call upon him in trouble, to pray to him and praise him, and to give thanks. Let your requests be made known to God, Paul writes in Philippians 4. Pray without ceasing, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5. Prayer is not an option. Okay? And that's really, I mean, there's more in this section, but those are the points that I wanted to highlight. If there's anything further that you'd like to go into or any questions you have fitting that, I'm happy to entertain those. Good. Okay. Second is the promise of prayer. The bottom of 194. Wolf Mueller writes, Second, there are promises regarding prayer. God promises to hear and answer them. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Quoting from Psalm 50. And you can already note the promise there. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So the promise to deliver. Now again, God's going to deliver us in the way he sees best, but there is a promise there. Jesus gives a wonderful promise regarding prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, Wolf Mueller writes, and now he quotes Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, Wolfmuller writes, because God has promised to hear and answer our prayers, we mix our prayers with faith. See James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. When we end our prayers with Amen, 
we are saying, Yes, Lord, I truly believe that you have heard my prayers and that you will answer them. So I love that the Catechism draws that out as well. This idea that Amen is a very powerful word. It's not just the throwaway word by which we end our prayers, but Amen is yes, yes, it shall be so. I believe this. I believe that you will answer accordingly. Amen is that statement of faith. Yes. Uh, One second. Let's get you the microphone. This verse has always been a little confusing in that I was taught to think that this was increasing. Ask is the least, and then seek would be more, and knock would be even more. But maybe it's just all the same bottom thing, just call on me. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting proposition. I've thought of it before. I just don't know that you can necessarily make that connection, that this is intensified action that Jesus has in mind. In fact, it's dubious to me the way he structures the response. Everyone who asks receives. Then if it's progressive, why would you need to go further than that? So I think that this is just our Lord's poetic way of describing the activity of asking seeking, knocking, which, how would you translate that? Pray this way, that way, every which way. That's roughly how I would translate that. I think that that's what he's getting at in a more, in a more poetic sense. You remember the, another, I think Wolf Mueller quotes somewhere in here, um, but you remember the, the, par- the parable that's explicitly taught by Jesus so that we would not lose heart and keep on praying? It's the prayer of the pers- or the parable of the persistent widow. She just keeps knocking and knocking and knocking and seeking and seeking and won't leave the judge alone. And finally, even though he's a wicked judge and cares nothing for God or man, he answers her out of pure exasperation. And I, it, what's humorous about that is, hey, even someone who's completely unlike God will eventually respond. How much more do you think? God will respond in his own good timing, so don't lose heart as you continue to pester God. That's the point. Yeah. So in this, in this respect, too, like asking, seeking, knocking, persistence, maybe even pestering, is okay. Okay, so, yeah, this promise, we heard it in Psalm 50, we heard it here in the mouth of our Lord, but it is not, and this is, this is obviously the case, Wolfmuller does a nice little digression here on what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, and how this isn't a guarantee that if you say, please give me a red Ferrari in, in the name of Jesus, you're going to get one. That's not how it works, but rather, as you pray, you recognize that, and I think that this teaching of Jesus is, you may be asking for a serpent. That red Ferrari may in fact be a serpent. And he's good enough that he's not going to give you a serpent. Okay? And that might be an exaggerated example, but it might be that you're asking for something that even though it is good, and it might even be good for him to fulfill, there's better, and you have to trust him. 
Okay, so that would be the more subtle, more difficult point. I mean, imagine if your child was sick or something and you asked, you sought, you knocked, you wrestled, you did everything you could, and the child dies. You have to entrust yourself to God that even though you were praying for a good and for something that is in keeping with his will, that he has chosen something better. And you have to humble yourself before God and simply receive that. Now, the circumstances and conditions are a little different, but that's not too far afield from David when he prayed that the son he had with Bathsheba would be spared and uh, wept and mourned and put on sackcloth and ash. And then when the child dies, God answers his prayer with a, no, this is better. David, against all social custom of the time, anoints, washes, anoints his head with oil and goes about his day, knowing that God has answered in the way that is better. And even makes this statement of faith that my son will not return to me, but I will return to him. That is, God has saved my child, even though he died prior to circumcision. And I know that he will save me as well, despite my sins. And there will be a reunion. And this is for the better, even though my heart breaks. So it's an incredible example of faith when God has a different plan in mind than we do. So I think Jesus gets at this as only Jesus can. The Father will only give us that which is good. And when we pray in the name of Jesus, it's the same. That's only going to be returned to us in a way that is ultimately good. And there's going to be a call to faith because we may not see it that way, at least not yet. Did I see a, a hand or a microphone? Or We're okay? All right. All right, so the promise of prayer is the second thing we need to have in mind. If we go on to page 196, we'll see the third thing we need to know about prayer, according to Wolf Mueller. And if you look at 196, you'll see the subheading, Our Great Need. And I think that this... Uh, paragraph will resonate with the things that I was saying a moment ago. Wolfmuller writes, we pray for what we need, but because of our fallen condition, we don't always know the things we need. Martin Luther often spoke of our sinful condition as spiritual leprosy. The disease of leprosy destroys the nerves. You can't feel pain. Leprosy makes you so sick, you don't know how sick you are. We are so sick with sin, we don't know the desperate depth of our condition. This affects our prayers. In our sinfulness, we don't know what we need. We don't recognize how desperate our situation is. We don't know what is good for us. This is the third thing about prayer. Jesus teaches us what we really need in this life. And of course, in regard to prayer, if you want a master class in this, start praying the Psalms. 
because we are all by nature sinful and unclean, turned in on ourselves, you're going to go, why am I praying for this? This doesn't hit me. This doesn't resonate with me. This isn't how I feel. This isn't even things I care about. This is hard to understand. Why would I ever pray in this way? If we're honest, that is very frequently our reaction to praying the Psalms and very frequently why we don't continue to pray the Psalms, but just give up after the first six or seven. Okay, this is exactly fitting for that reflection. We're so sick we don't even know to pray for as we ought. So we have to humble ourselves, reorient ourselves. If God is having us pray these prayers that the Holy Spirit himself has written, those are the things we should really care about. The the other things in our lives, we can certainly pray about them, but it is a reorganizing and a restructuring of the very content of our prayers. And it's ultimately a reorientation of our perception of the world and our struggles within it. The beautiful thing is when you know, via the Psalms, that you have many terrible enemies, principalities and powers of darkness all around you, threatening you on a daily basis and manifesting themselves in the actions and behaviors of flesh and blood people, that that's the first thing you ought to pray for. And frequently in the Psalms, that is. Other times in the Psalms, it's like, I'm down, I'm grumpy, I can count, let me count all the things that aren't going right, my laundry list that I would bring to God, and the Psalm for the morning is nothing but praise and thanksgiving. Because even in the midst of the, being in the belly of the beast, or in the den with the lions, or in the furnace with the fire, there is always opportunity to thank and praise God even still. And so the Psalms are always counteracting our felt needs. This used to be a big deal as they teach pastors like you need to preach in a way where you're ministering to people's felt needs. And I always like was suspicious about that. It's no the felt needs more often than not aren't the true needs. The felt needs are the very things we need to set aside and put to death so that we can look at the true need and the true medicine that Christ gives. So that's very frequently also our disconnect with Christianity as a whole or with God's word as a whole is it's like, well, I think I need this. No, you don't. (laughs) If you did, God would give it to you. What you rather need is to throw away what you think you need, recognize what it is you truly need, and receive that then because that, in fact, is what the Lord has for you. So... That's a, that's a macro and micro exercise, a micro exercise frequently on Sunday morning when we go and say, okay, what is the sermon going to, what are the texts and what is the sermon going to be about? And you think, well, I've got these needs, I sure, I've got these hungers, I sure hope the needs are met and the hungers are fulfilled. And God's like, yep, nope. Why? Because that's not nearly as important as what you don't feel, which is your truest need. And you're so sick, you don't even know that you're dehydrated. And so this is the water that you do need before you can handle any other food. And so God is constantly doing that for us on the micro level and on the macro level. All right, so that's the third thing we need to know about prayer. Since we're running short on time, let me blast off to the fourth part, which Wolf Mueller introduces on page 198 and 199. And this is the words to say. So I know this will function for us as a little bit of a cliffhanger. We're likely to have some lively discussion 
uh, in a couple weeks when we return to this point. But here is a little bit of a critique of the American Christian way of looking at ex corde, that is from the heart, spontaneous prayers being the only real prayer. Which, again, if you've ever tried to do this with any amount of discipline, you recognize how impoverished your own heart is and how impoverished your own prayers are, that you pretty much run out of gas after a few days or a few weeks at most. So the fourth part then is that God actually gives us the words to say. And Wolf Mueller writes, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, and other prayers of the Bible, we do not amend our prayers with, if it be your will. When we pray the prayers of the Bible, we know the things we are asking for are in fact his will. We know it is the Lord's will to make his name holy with us, to let his kingdom come, to feed us, forgive us, to lead and deliver us. Praying the words the Lord has taught us give us great confidence in prayer. One of the marks of American Christian piety is spontaneity in prayer. To be genuine and spiritual, prayer should be from the heart. In other words, for a prayer to be a real prayer, you have to make it up on the spot. There is, of course, nothing wrong with making up a prayer, but the exaltation of spontaneity disparages printed prayers and praying the prayers of Scripture. In fact, there is a subtle disparaging of the Lord's Prayer because it is, quote-unquote, rote and not, quote-unquote, heartfelt. I've even had, heard evangelicals dismiss the Lord's Prayer altogether. Don't pray that. That's just a rote prayer. It's like, do you not realize that when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, he put these words into their hands, into their hearts, into their mouths? How could you ever disparage that? But that's where we are. Okay, so top of 199, and we'll be wrapped up for the day. This is the fourth, fourth thing we know about prayer. Jesus has taught us the words to say, Pray then like this, our Father, Matthew 6, or when you pray, say, Father, Luke 11. When we are praying the petitions of the Lord's Prayer and the Psalms, we bring our requests before God with great confidence, knowing that these are the words he wants to hear from us, the things he wants us to ask for, and the petitions he wants to answer. So as you develop in your prayer life, being trained by the Lord's Prayer and by the Psalms, by maybe by the other wonderful prayers given to us by the church, you come to reorient the content of your own prayers because you realize these are the things that God desires us to pray for. Now, it doesn't mean you can't slip in your petitions, no matter how foolish or trivial they might be. Please do. There's nothing forbidding that. But it is a recontextualization and a redefinition of the content of our prayers along biblical lines. So, to be really kind of maybe overly harsh about it, this idea of if it doesn't come from my heart, it's not real. Well, your heart is foolish, and doesn't know the, even the things that God would have you pray for. So why don't you train your heart in the way of the scriptures, pray for the things that God would have you pray for, and then if you want to add in whatever it is you want to add in, that's supplementary to the main prayers. Again, this has a galvanizing effect not only on our prayer life, 
but it also has a galvanizing effect on our entire perception of the world because you start to see things that were once so important they eclipsed everything else as no longer important and the things that are so important are spelled out in God's word and that's the main thing and the rest is just details. Okay, we're out of time. Thank you for your patience. So two weeks from now, we'll pick up with this thought. I'll give you a chance to, to push back if you think Wolfmuller or I uh, were too harsh on spontaneous prayer. And we'll finish out the chapter on prayer, and then I think we've just got two chapters left. We're going to have a chapter on the last things, um, the end of the world as we know it, and then the final chapter, chapter I think, is uh, surprised by the gospel. The Lord be with you.